In this episode of 2000 Books, author David Burkus busts the myth of creativity and talks about five ways to be creative and generate innovative ideas. Well, hello, hello, my ambitious friends, and welcome to 2000 Books, where we bring you the most important actionable ideas from the world's greatest books for ambitious entrepreneurs every single week. And I'm your host and former computer engineer turned entrepreneur, Manny Vaya. So these days, people often ask me, Manny, you've read over a thousand books now. What is it? What is that one most important success lesson you've learned from all these books? What separates the successful from everyone else? So I decided to create a free video course to show you exactly what that number one ingredient of success is and how anyone can develop it. You can get it for free at 2000books.com slash success. That's 2000books.com slash success. David Burkus is a best-selling author and award-winning podcaster and an associate professor of management at Oral Roberts University. Today, we're talking about his book, The Myths of Creativity, the truth about how innovative companies and people generate great ideas. David, this is an entrepreneurial crowd, and I'm really excited to have you on the show and talk about these topics. So welcome. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Thank you. Thank you for being here. Thank you for talking. Thank you for talking to... Uh, this tribe of entrepreneurs for whom creativity is a big deal. We're, you know, we're all trying to innovate. We're all trying to be creative and we're all trying to get the edge. So tell us, what's the story behind this book? Like, we want to get to know you. What's the story behind the book? What's your story that led you to writing this book? Yeah, well, all right. So my my story is a lot longer than the story that led me to writing this book. But, um, you know, but, I mean, they sort of go hand in hand. So I was uh, w- when I was in high school and in college and undergraduate um, university, I was an English major. I was wanted to be a writer, wanted to be the sort of John Steinbeck, um, Ernest Hemingway, maybe a little bit longer lifespan than Ernest Hemingway. Um, but that kind of like great, you know, great American novelist type, uh, approach. And so I went to university to study English and study writing and about, it was my junior year. So just over halfway through, I took a couple kind of elective classes in social science, communication theory, um, organizational psychology, et cetera. And I really sort of fell in love with that idea um, so I got this idea and I found that other people um, had already been doing it. So, you know, at the time you had shortly after or around graduation was uh, when Malcolm Gladwell's The Tipping Point came out, for example. And there were a couple other people who were doing a really good job telling stories, but also pairing that with uh, social science research and having kind of an evidence based perspective on their arguments. And so I was sort of like, I I want to do that. And so the bulk of my um, career ever since then has been that through line. How do I use the tools of sport, storytelling and communication to get good ideas out of the ivory tower and out of the world of social science and academic journals and into the hands of people that can use them? And in terms of misc of creativity, I mean, it's it's semi-autobiographical in that one of the easiest things for me to notice because I came from the the literature world, the writing world, was that there were all of these myths and misconceptions about how it's supposed to work. I mean, writers are are dreadful about talking about their muse and all of these other things that are that are not actually steeped in in social science. Ideas don't really work like that. They work a whole lot more 
industrial design community like IDEO would talk about or, or firms like Pixar, et cetera. And they work like social science would would tell us they do. So this was the idea. And maybe we can clear up a lot of the myths and misconceptions about creativity and innovation by pairing it with the research and in doing so, giving people sort of a manual for how to proceed. Absolutely. And not only in the creative world, not only in the writing world or the music world, it's also a very prevalent idea in the entrepreneurial world. For some reason, we believe Edison or uh, Archimedes or uh, Galileo or uh, Steve Jobs were greatly creative, greatly innovative people. But there are a lot of stories behind it. And we'll explore those stories. We'll talk about those stories to tell the truth behind the fact that they're not just people who just had this aha moment and or who just had brilliant insight after brilliant insight after brilliant insight it was much more of a discovery process yeah absolutely and i think we do ourselves a disservice when we take let's say a, a steve jobs for example and put him on a pedestal and say that he was this lone genius that got these direct transmissions from some mysterious force that allowed him to have all of these amazing ideas no he was I mean, he was a serial copycat for one um <laughs> but he also knew how to sort of recognize great ideas and then what it would take to kind of get from idea to execution, which was really more his genius was executing. But, but again, I think the bigger challenge is, I mean, especially for, for entrepreneurs, especially for people who are just starting with their ideas. If you look at, at Steve jobs or, or Thomas Edison, who was the Steve jobs before there was a Steve jobs, right? If we put them up on a pedestal, we, uh, we make it seem like maybe we would never have the ability to, to get there. We celebrate these people as kind of these almost, you know, demigods of creativity. Then we feel like as mere mortals, we're not going to be able to, to cut it. Well, the truth is they're just like us. They use the same tools we have access to. We to learn what that process looks like. Yeah, yeah. And I want to jump right into one of the awesome stories there, which is the whole idea. I think uh, maybe a lot of people don't realize that GUI, the graphical user interface, as Jobs sometimes like to say, uh, he liked to tout that it was an Apple invention that Microsoft copied. But there's more to that story, right? Oh, oh, totally. And and I mean, the the copying goes way back. But the, the gist of the story with Apple, so... You know, we, we give Apple and the Macintosh a lot of credit for creating that sort of desktop and Windows interface. And in technical terms, that's the graphical user interface. Um, it's the idea that you have a virtual representation of what uh, a person's desktop would look like, for example, files, folders, all of that kind of stuff. Um, and, and that idea is not unique to, to jobs at all. That the, the easier um, way to decide what is first was is actually the first one that, that used that. I mean, because if we go way back into the 1800s, we can point to theoretical examples. But the first that executed was actually Xerox. Um, Xerox's Palo Alto Research Facility in um, California. Now, if you, if you know anything about ge geography, especially of California, Palo Alto, very far away from where Xerox's headquarters are outside of New York City. Right. Mm -hmm. So there's this huge gap geographically between headquarters and Xerox. There's also a huge gap ideologically in the way that they celebrate great ideas and innovation. Right. So so Xerox comes up with this thing. It's the world's first personal computer. I mean, at this time, computers, they were getting smaller and smaller. But it still if an entire wall was occupied by a computer, nobody blinked and said that's a huge computer. That was the standard. Right. That was actually probably pretty small. So in creating this, Xerox, you know, the, the park researchers present it to Xerox and they say, 
um, this is this is our idea, and that the senior leaders of Xerox are like, nah, we we're, we're we make photocopies. We this is not we're a document company. This is not what we're what we're about. Let's just table that. And around Jobs had come back to to um, or Jobs was working, and really um, Apple was thriving first time around. He had the opportunity to do a deal with Xerox to get some investment, and essentially Xerox traded. Um, uh, a lot of Apple stock for some money, but more importantly for some access. They gave Steve Jobs the ability to go around Xerox Park and look at all of the different inventions. And he was drawn to this computer, to this graphical interface. And he left and basically took the idea with him. He came back. He said, this is what we're going to do. We're setting up a whole other shop. This was the sort of legendary um, Macintosh team versus the Lisa team, right? And it was this back and forth rivalry and Jobs talking about his group as being pirates and all that stuff. I mean, they, they literally were pirates. They were ripping off an idea. Um, and I mean, even hiring away some researchers from Xerox, which is easy to do because senior leaders just squelched your idea. So he hires them all away and he comes up with this. And then, and then of course, windows comes out and there's actually this really funny moment in, in where, um, jobs, because he always used to say windows just copied the Mac jobs had the opportunity to say that to bill Gates and bill, um, you can almost picture Bill Gates sort of saying this. Bill just kind of goes, ah, I, don't, I don't look at it that way, Steve. I look at it like I broke into our neighbor Xerox's house and found that you had already stolen the TV. <laughs> right. And so in other words, in other words, they both copied and, and Gates was OK with it. Gates was knows that innovation is iter- iterative. It's combinatorial, that it's that you do every idea as a combination of pre-existing ideas. Gates knew that. So he was OK with it. Jobs, on the other hand, had this weird um, ability to be a relentless copier, but then also think his ideas were hugely original, right? Case in point, when Android came out, when Google came up with their own operating system for a phone, Jobs was willing to go, his words, not mine, thermonuclear war in the legal fight with Android over the, the similarities between a Droid phone and a Windows phone. Both of them probably should have been pretty realistic about the idea that they were just copying pre-existing operating systems. That's amazing. Yeah, it's 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 fascinating that we somehow overlook the fact that it's the influence of other ideas, the influence of the ideas that came before us that created these new new ideas, not just for ourselves, but for others who have innovated. And not to put those guys on a pedestal and think somehow they created something magical, but realize that this is just the process of innovation. And that we're all capable of doing this. We're all capable of doing this. Once we stop trying to think that some one person is original and that this is the way it works. It's actually, it gets easier. The process gets easier for ourselves uh, and our teams or, you know, our enterprise in some ways. Yeah. I mean, once we're intellectually honest about how creativity works, that it works from combining ideas, then we're much more open about it. And you see this in certain fields, right? So, you know, it's a, it's a far cry from, um, the startup community, but every band, every garage band, I mean, it's funny that actually bands and, and startups are both found legendarily founded in garages, right? But every, every band sort of starts with the idea. If you ask them, who are your influences? They'll tell you literally a list of bands that they admire and that when you go back and listen to their sound that they copied and they're okay with that because we know that that's how you develop your own voice or your own sound in music is you copy lots of different bands that you're a unique combination of all of those different ideas. And so there's where the unique piece comes in. Um, but you're not wholly original. It's not actually possible, right? And and startups are the same way. And sometimes they're intellectually honest about it, right? There's a lot of companies out there that are, that are saying, we're Uber for X. Well, what they basically mean by that is 
here's the business model, but we're taking it to a different area. And that's okay. The world needs that. That's the only way we ever get ideas. Yeah, yeah. It's almost like the startups that survive or the startups that make it are the ones who realize that this is what is happening, that it's it, originality is a myth. And not only that, they also overcome the other myth, which is the mousetrap myth in the sense that they are persistent with their ideas, Facebook being an example of one of those, that they're not just ready to give up in the face of one difficulty or one setback. They'll keep on, keep on keeping on. And that allows them to make their idea persist. Yeah, I mean, absolutely, totally. And and also be um, free, not just to make their idea persist, but to persist themselves because now you never run out of ideas. Yes. You know, now you have the ability to think of, okay, that, that idea for that business didn't work, but now you're not stuck in a holding pattern waiting for a new idea. You just know the raw material with which everybody builds their ideas. Absolutely. Uh, for, for our listeners, just to understand what the mousetrap myth is, as you explained in the book, the mousetrap myth is the idea, the myth that somehow if you build a better mousetrap, the world, the world will beat the path to your door. I was talking to a friend of mine who is a fellow entrepreneur and he's in very early stage and he's building and building and building and building something um, without going out to try to figure out how to get it out to the world. And he believes that somehow if he builds this amazing thing, it will all work out. But that is very far from truth, isn't it? Yeah, he's in for a hard, a hard lesson, right? It, it's sort of one, one of my buddies actually, who's a, who's a, um, on a sort of an info product entrepreneur who calls it the cycle of guaranteed failure, right? Go away, Iterate, 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 perfect, 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 launch it and hope there's a market and then there isn't one, right? We, we know that, I mean, people like Eric Rise made a, um, a impact in the community knowing that a minimum viable product is a great idea, not just because don't spend all that time perfecting it before you launch, but also because the feedback that you get allows you to sort of iterate. When we think that the world is just going to recognize our grand idea um, for the genius that we think it has, we set ourselves up for failure. The world is actually terrible at judging great ideas. I mean, we said this with the Xerox Park example. That's a perfect example of, of a big company not recognizing that great idea. But, you know, I remember in the first dot-com boom, all of these amazing ideas for businesses advertised on the Super Bowl and then went away forever, never to be seen of again. Those people thought they had world-changing ideas and they spent a ton of capital developing them rather you know no no idea is going to survive um initial initial exposure to an audience unchanged mm -hmm. every single time it's gonna especially for businesses it's going to change it's going to iterate because nobody likes your idea except you i know that seems so mean to Apologize, but the truth is that great ideas get judged along two uh, innovative ideas get judged along two criteria: are they new or are they original to that industry, and are they useful? And these are it's really hard to satisfy both ideas at the same time. If something is useful, then it does a better job at doing some at filling a need we already had, based on uh, products we already have, right? Mm -hmm. If something is new or novel or original, then it either fills a need we didn't know we had, which is one problem. Or um, we can't really sort of judge it at all because we don't have a frame of reference for 
um, what counts as doing it better than than previous things. So to ask for something to be new and useful at the same time asks for us to judge it based on the way that it departs from our past experience and the status quo, while at the same time judging it based on the past experiences and status quo. Surprise, surprise, humans are pretty terrible at that. So better to launch sort of a small idea, get feedback, iterate, move forward than to launch this huge thing and just hope and and pray that you're that one in a million that people recognize right off the bat. Much more likely, they're not going to recognize your genius right off the bat. Yeah, absolutely. We've constantly be able to be, we've got to be able to constantly uh, move, change direction to figure out what the market will take and then give the market what it needs. Now, another, another key idea that uh, you touched upon in the book or you talked a lot about in the book really was, you know, sometimes uh, we have this myth that there is this one eureka moment when it all comes together, when everything just happens. And sometimes as entrepreneurs or as creatives, we wait for that in order to start our journeys or in order to make our journeys happen. But that's not how it works. There's, that's not how actually eureka ever even happened for Archimedes, right? Let's talk about that. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I, so a couple things. So it does certainly feel that way. The difference is we're forgetting the whole story before that moment happened. Right. And Archimedes is a great example. So the story we all remember with Archimedes is something about a bathtub and a crown yelling Eureka when he had this amazing insight and then running down the streets naked into the King's chambers, et cetera, which is, you should automatically question the story because somehow he did that. And then he wasn't like executed, which I think if you ran naked into the, the head of state's <laughs> chambers, you would probably, but anyway, whole other, that's a whole other issue. <laughs> what we forget is that most likely he was working on this problem for a long period of time. He was already doing the research. He was already um, experimenting with different ideas. And, and yeah, there is something to stepping back from that work that can make, um, make an, an insight happen more likely. So there's a bunch of different reasons. We call this in the social science literature, we call this incubation, stepping back from the work from time, giving your brain a break, letting it move from your conscious mind to your subconscious mind. And the truth is most psychologists, we, we don't we don't know what happens when you're incubating, but we know that it's helpful. The thing is, that's not a eureka moment, right? That's doing a lot of work, then taking a break, then going back to doing a lot of work. Often, because it feels so exhilarating to get that idea, we start talking about things like the muse, or we start using phrases like, it just came to me. The number one question you should ask when anybody says, it just came to me is, do you know where it came from? Because if we can figure that out, we can we can solve this whole thing. The truth is it came from yourself. It was there sort of all along. You may have needed an incubation period to, to bring it out, but it was already there. And that's where the problem that you alluded to stems from. This idea that we need to just wait around for that great idea is is very it's faulty because that does that simply doesn't happen. Rather, if we're if we're really into this, we need to be doing the research, we need to be experimenting, we need to be trying things, and then we need to be incubating so we can let that aha happen. Or even better, we need to be working on multiple projects um, at a time. This is actually one of the reasons I'm a big fan of like those those startups and those um, the small businesses that start as sort of a side hustle. I, one of the reasons I th I'm so sort of bullish on them is that 
because it's your the thing you're doing on the side that you're definitely hustling on, but you're also doing some other project or have some other job, et cetera, that other job is your incubation for the job, for the side hustle, for the passion, right? So you're automatically um, building that incubation in, which is great. If you're not doing that, I mean, one of the interesting things is when people go from, um, from side hustle to, oh, hey, now it's my full-time job. Now we're trying to scale. Now we've got two or three people and they're just grinding it out all of the time. They're not giving themselves time to incubate. And it's no surprise that that's when the idea flow slows too. Mm. There's quite a few things here at play. Uh, one of the first things, and that's almost like a call to action, a call to arms to a lot of our listeners who might be sitting on the side sidelines and thinking, okay, well, when that great idea comes, when that great idea appears, I will start my business or I'll take the plunge. It's not going to happen because all of those things come as a result of all the hard work you've put in before the great idea actually makes its appearance. So um, really important for us to keep on plugging away, for us to keep on pushing on and uh, find the eureka moment when it arrives and uh, again, keep on pushing on. And the other thing, as you said, um, it's not it's not necessarily easy to be creative when you're in the midst of it all. And that's why we need to take breaks. That's why we need to step back uh, ever so often to be able to create those ideas. Okay, so David, one of the things uh, you talked about or one of the studies you talked about was the whole incubation study where, which basically points out that taking those little breaks away from dedicated tasks actually allows us to become really creative. And here I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to really, like this is something that, that I struggle with quite a bit because this is like there are two parts, there are two ends of the spectrum. And I know before we started the interview, we were talking about uh, the work, uh, Cal Newport's work, uh, Deep Work, where he advocates that we need to be like focused on one thing for extended periods of time, you know, sometimes what he calls monastic or, you know, monk-like mode, which is, you know, days, even weeks on one work. While on the other hand, we also say, hey, we need to take breaks for us to be able to step back and to be able to think, uh, think clearly or get those ideas. So how do, we, how do we walk this line or do we have a clear answer on that? So the, the research is really interesting. The research doesn't necessarily say that you have to pull back and go into sort of a meditative state, right? That you have to take a shower or take a walk or things like that. To be honest, I think the best thing is just to be juggling a couple different projects because when you're, when you're working on one, you're incubating on the, on the other, um, oftentimes too, and this is where Cal and I kind of differ. Um, even if you're working on just one project, there's a couple different facets of it. Some of which require that deep work thinking, and and others don't. I mean, quite frankly. So one of the things that I do is um, I kind of batch my email. So I don't respond to email often as it comes in, et cetera. What I tend to do mm -hmm. is I check it two to three times a day. And I check it when I'm in a block, when I need a time to pull back, when I need a time to incubate. Because, I mean, let's face it, it doesn't take a lot of high levels of thought to respond to most emails. I mean, there's a few that do and I leave them in the inbox for for when I have to do that. But most of them are, are 2.30 sounds great. And, and you know, uh, yeah, okay, we'll meet at that restaurant. Those, those types of like simple easy ones. And so those are the ones that I kind of flip back and forth between. I think you, um, I think you need shallow work too, um, in order to sort of be that incubation. Otherwise you're stuck sort of, you know, take, trying to take a shower and, and make an idea happen. It's just not going to work as well as juggling projects because then you're still productive. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, the, uh, when I was talking to Daniel Leverton of The Organized Mind, not sure if you've read the book, he was talking about the idea of task positive versus task negative modes in the sense tasks where you're fully engaged and then tasks where you're kind of sort of disengaged. So that might be, you know, that might be another way to look at it. But I guess we're still we're still uh, trying to figure this out in, in more detail in some ways. Yeah, I mean, I should say that's the interesting thing. The, my, I wrote The Myth of Creativity in 2013, and there's been a lot of studies since then, right? So we're still researching, we're still learning, we're still moving forward. Yeah, yeah. All right, so another great myth that, or great myth or a bad myth that we have is the myth of incentives in the sense we believe that somehow having a a reward associated with a task or or an extrinsic reward associated with a task or a big reward associated with some sort of creative output will actually lead to better creativity. But that's not the case, right? Yeah, and, and this really comes from the world of, uh, of traditional management, it really comes from the world of thinking that, uh, okay, if we can, um, if we need something done well, we measure it. And if we need it done really well, we incentivize it based on the measures. And, you know, this goes back a hundred years to managing factory work and, and incentivizing on a piece rate system. So if you make X number of widgets, you get X number of dollars, et cetera. And, you know, because of a lot of the ideas that we've experimented with, the constant experimentation, the need to iterate, the need to go back and forth and allow for time for incubation, et cetera, creativity just can't be managed in that same way. The, the interesting thing is that, you know, inside of a big organization, the implications are quite clear that you just sort of can't set up these incentive bonuses inside of a startup world, inside of a, a, a small business. It, I think it becomes a, a lot harder because especially a lot of startups, they're trying to attract talent. They're trying to compete with the big companies, traditional brands that look great on resumes. And one of the easiest levers they have to pull is, oh, well, you know, we'll include stock options, for example. And, and that'll, that'll be amazing once we actually go IPO and all of these sort of things. And that's just another carrot to dangle in front of people that doesn't actually enhance their creativity. Their research is, is kind of pretty clear on that. It's, it's possible to get um, extrinsic motivators aligned, but it's really difficult. It's easier then to focus in on, here's the ways our company's going to change the world. Here's the way our work is great and worth doing, not here's the way we're going to make a ton of money because of the creativity of this idea. Yeah, yeah. This is this is one of the tough ones. This is one of the challenging ones because um, <clears throat> we need to motivate people. We need to motivate ourselves sometimes to get stuff done. But at the same time, there's this fine balance between what truly rewards us on the inside compared to what rewards we can get on the outside. And in some ways, those extrinsic, require, extrinsic rewards are kind of required, but <laughs> they're the intrinsic but when we do work for the sake of the intrinsic reward we get out of it the quality of the work is definitely much higher and uh, and that's something that i guess you've seen from research uh, uh, which was about uh, some art pieces commissioned yeah so this is a really interesting study and one that um I interviewed Teresa Mabile, the study's author for it on, and she was actually really excited to talk about this one because it never got, it got presented at a couple conferences and it never got published in a journal for like the permanent record um, because she moved, she changed jobs and she lost her data. This was back when it wasn't on computers, when it was, you know, actual um, printed out data. But uh, essentially what she did was she took uh, a group of artists and kind of, uh, and asked them to bring a couple different types of art to them. 
um, works that had been commissioned and then also works that they had done at their free time um, to just kind of play, experiment, anything that they were intrinsically motivated to do. And she brought those uh, – they, they brought all these different pieces together and then she in, – in the psychology literature was what we call blinded them. But what that really means is basically like she knew which ones were commissioned and which ones were not. But she showed them to a panel of judges and didn't say which ones were commissioned and which ones were not and then asked them to rate them on their on – their, um, on their beauty, on their creativity, on a bunch of different stuff. When it came to creativity especially, the non-commissioned pieces got a much higher rating. In other words, the pieces that were being done for love of creating, for just the desire to be around it, and the pieces that um, weren't so worried about, I need to do this and I need to do a good job so I can earn my the rest of my pay, et cetera, were far more creative. And and you know what I think is interesting about that is that that again reiterates this idea that the driving message, especially for for uh, the startup community, the driving message that motivates a lot of people is not how much money we're going to make, but how much of an impact we're going to make, because that's what the research suggests. You make a much bigger impact, you make a much better product, et cetera, when you're intrinsically motivated to build something great, not when you are just in it for the payday. Yeah, yeah. This is. This is a huge, huge one that uh, I personally have struggled in the past, but I've, I've found a lot more um, balance with it, a lot more peace with it, because I come from engineering backgrounds and uh, software background and all that stuff. And for, for the longest time, I thought I should be doing a software startup and you know uh, raising venture money and do all those things. But I realized the things that I, like, I enjoyed weren't necessarily in that frame of reference. So I had to allow myself to give that up, even though it sounded way more glamorous. It wasn't going to be fulfilling for me. And uh, um, it, it took me a long time to kind of reconcile with that or to kind of be okay with that. But that's, that's I think, an individual <laughs> decision or individual choice. But at some point, we all got to make that decision for our lives. Well, and I'll be, I'll be honest with you, too. It's also sort of... Um it's disappointment insurance, right? If you build something great and you break even on it, you still have that something great to point back to. But if you dedicate hours and days and years of time to building something for the payday, and as we talked about with the mousetrap myth, the payday doesn't arrive, well, then now you've got a huge disappointment. Now you look back on what you did and you wasted your time. But if you're doing it out of love of creating it and you'd be happy even if it just doesn't put you into debt, even if you just break even, or sometimes even if you don't break even, but now that thing exists, that's disappointment insurance. Absolutely. And, you know, I, 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 exactly. Those were, those were some of the thoughts going on in my head. And part of the thought was also, what would I do when I had exited the company, when I had made all the money? And I thought I would come back to doing what I want to do anyway. So why kind of take that long route when I could just do what I want to do, which is, which is what I'm doing right now. So <laughs> kind of a circuitous, uh, uh, kind of a uh, simple answer sometimes to uh, kind of, uh, to complex problems that we think uh, uh, think uh, how do I say it? we think more we we make them more complicated than they need to be um, we've been we've been talking qu about quite a few great ideas from the book David and there's one uh, one that's gnawing at me and I want to touch upon it which is the the myth of the lone creator because that is something I see a lot in in entrepreneurs, in early stage entrepreneurs, they somehow feel like they can be the lone warriors. They can figure it all out. They, they don't reach out to their community for support. They don't partner with people. They don't 
work with others in any way, shape, or form and somehow feel they need to prove themselves, they need to prove their mettle, or they there is some weird fascination with trying to figure it out all by yourself. And the truth is nobody does that all by themselves, not even Edison, right? Yeah, I mean, so Thomas Edison's a great example. Early on in his career, he had some success, and then he took this sort of bold, dramatic action. He created this thing. Um, he created this facility. He called it Menlo Park just because that's where it, it, it was. But it was a workshop where on any given day, 10 or 15 of his his friends, uh, fellow engineers, tinkerers, experimenters, et cetera, were all working on different projects. And, and they as a team actually figured out that the market responded better to the idea that Thomas Edison, the lone genius, was slaving away. The wizard of Menlo Park was you know, alone in his workshop, burning the midnight oil, working on your problem. The market liked that idea better. And so Edison, the man, um, kind of became code for this whole group of people. They called themselves the muckers. Um, but it was this whole group of people that were working together. And sure enough, history doesn't really remember most of them. Their names are on most of his patents alongside his name. Um, but history sort of doesn't remember them. And, you know, the modern day Thomas Edison would be the sort of Steve Jobs character. And if if you think about it for more than 30 seconds or so, then yes, OK, so there was Steve Wozniak and Johnny Ive and Tim Cook and a bunch of other people um, helping make him successful. But we, we don't like that story. So we only we only talk about it when people make us right history seems to sort of like this idea of the lone man the lone inventor etc and i think that's a terrible message for entrepreneurs especially because edison had help jobs had help everybody that's ever made a dent in the universe has help creativity is a team sport you're not gonna get there very far on on your own certainly there's a couple people that do but it goes back to that idea of do you want to be the one in a million or do you want to be successful because the other 999,000 did it as a team right mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. um i think it's a terrible message to put these people up on that pedestal and say they did it they did it alone when they didn't but it also sends that message that if you need help you're failing that's not true if you need help you're on the same path every other entrepreneurial genius was ever on all of them needed help at some point this is great this is great and uh and this is something i want to again raise it to our fellow listeners that go out go go partner with people go find masterminds go find mentors go find advisors go create a board of advisors whatever you need to do find the people who will move your business forward with you do not try to loan it out it's not going to be fun it's not going to work out that's really as simple as that it's not going to the chances of failure rise dramatically when you are a lone venturer so um david this has been this has been a lot of fun and as always, at 2000 Books, we always say there is no learning without action. We are dedicated to learning, but no action means really no learning. So looking back at this interview, looking back at this book, looking back at your, you know, at your times that you've spent with entrepreneurs, what are some of the most important pieces of action items you can give us, three specific action items you can give us uh, so that we can go home and work on some of these things? Yeah. So the first one would be actually you hit it. It was the one you just sort of ended on, right? Is this idea that you need a team. So go seek out groups where entrepreneurs gather, whether that is um, a one million cups chapter in your area, whether that is a, um, a mastermind, whatever that is, wherever the watering hole that other entrepreneurs in your city are, go there because you're going to need some help. So that would be one. The two would be pay attention to your, uh, my friend Todd Henry calls it stimulus, but pay attention to the, the content that you're consuming 
consuming. If ideas are combinations of pre-existing ideas, then you need to not just be grinding it out all the time. You need to be taking time to learn new things, to learn about new things, because that's the raw material that you sculpt um, new ideas from. And then, you know, the last thing is, again, sort of a mindset shift. It's this uh, idea that if you're slaving away and you need this thing to be perfect, you you don't because the world's probably not going to recognize it as as strongly and as valuable as you think it is. So come to terms with that and be better shipping this sort of half done product. I mean, obviously a minimum viable product, so you can't have it have be so fair and no one can use it, but, um, ship something that's, that's sort of half baked and let the interaction between your initial users and the reaction from the community finish the job and bake it the rest of the way through. It's, it's going to be the best way to arrive at a product, um, that actually does stand a chance of scaling. So, so those would be the big three, right? Find the watering holes, be around those people and pay attention to what you're consuming because that's the raw material with which that you build ideas and then mentally just overcome your own sort of perfectionism because the reaction from the community is not going to be that strong and you can learn something from it but only if you are comfortable with that idea and usually it's easier to be comfortable with that idea if you're shipping that idea early not if you're shipping it late and perfect that's that's great this is this is awesome so david uh we've, we've been talking about all these great ideas i'm sure our listeners will want to explore more of what you teach more what you're doing so tell us tell us how to find you how to get hold of uh, you and all the good stuff that you're doing out there yeah so the the best place to find me would be david burkus.com b-u-r-k-u-s dot um, com there's more info about my books uh, i run a podcast called radio free leader so you know if you've hated the last 30 minutes or so you're gonna hate that show too <laughs> but if you've liked it um, check that out. You can check that out at davidberkus.com. There's also a ton of resources for you there, totally nice. free. So davidberkus.com. You got it. David has a very thriving podcast, has been around for seven plus years now. So David, uh, congratulations on that. By the way, if you want to get hold of the book, The Myths of Creativity, you can get it for free by signing up for a free Audible trial by going to 2000books.com slash free. That's how I read this book. No, I listened to this book. So uh, <laughs> there we have it. And I listened to a lot of the books at 2x, 2.5x, 3x, so I can consume them really fast. One way to do it, that's a hack. Um, so David, uh, this has been a joy. This has been a privilege. Thank you very much for taking the time to do this interview. I'm sure our audience really appreciated it. Uh, thank you. Yeah, thank you again so much for having me. So as more and more people find out about what I do, the question I invariably get asked is, Manny, you've read over a thousand books now. What is the most important success lesson you've learned from all these books? What is it that separates the winners, the successful from everyone else? So I decided to create a free video course to show you exactly what that number one ingredient of success is and how anyone can develop it. You can get it for free at 2000books.com slash success. Well, until next time, my ambitious friends, do something great with your life. Don't waste it.